This is Liren Baker, and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast. Today, we're chatting with Chef Jihae Kim, a 2021 Food & Wine Best New Chef and a 2020 James Beard semifinalist for the Great Lakes region. Just a few days after we recorded this episode, Jihae was honored once again as a 2022 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Chef. Based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Jihei is the chef and managing partner of the restaurant Miss Kim, where she is inspired by her Korean culinary traditions as well as her farmer neighbors in Michigan. I am so excited to welcome Jihei to the podcast. Hi, Jihei. Hello. I'm so I'm so pleased to be here. Nice to meet you, Liren. I'm so excited to meet you. I've I've read about you. I do subscribe to Food and Wine, <laughs> so um. I feel like I'm fangirling a little bit, but I always start by asking, what's the first thing you ever cooked and about how old were you? You know, I was not really allowed to cook when I was young. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I participated in like, you know, family holiday stuff like making dumplings, but actual cooking, I didn't actually do it until like I was grown up and living by myself in college. I think the... First thing that I actually cooked must have been Korean barbecue meat, like beef. Uh, that's like a soy garlic marinade with some sesame seed, sesame oil. My mm, mom, yummy. yeah, my mom believed that uh, I'm going to be ending up in the kitchen making food for the family as a housewife. And it was going to be a chore for me as it was chore for her. And she didn't want me to do it as a child. So she was sparing you the agony because she knew that you had plenty of time in your life for all the cooking. Yeah, but little did she know I did end up in the kitchen just, you know, not as a housewife, but as a chef. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So growing up, who did most of the cooking? Was it your mom? My mom is the firstborn of her family and my father is the firstborn of his family. So our family was always the family that hosted all the big holidays, all the cousins coming, my mom cooking up a storm in the kitchen. Aunties were, they were helping, but they were just like assistants. It was my mom cooking all the time. Oh, that's so nice to have the gatherings at your house. Because I just feel like when there's all that preparation work happening and you can, you're witness to it, it just feels more exciting. I don't know, <laughs> at least for me, because I, I liked seeing the behind the scenes of, of the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. And the kitchen was small. So we were like sprawled out in the living room with the electric skillets, um, just pan frying oh, wow. stuff on the electric skillets. And yeah, maybe I was allowed to help a little bit, but I just remember like cooking and eating all day long, just picking at it. It wasn't like, I don't remember a huge spread, like Thanksgiving spread presented to you all at the same time. I just remember a lot of cooking and a lot of like snacking all day. Your family gatherings sound so similar to mine growing up. So I totally identify with that. Just <laughs> constant eating and there's always something. I never felt like I was complaining about anything being cold or the wrong temperature. It just felt like the food was constantly coming out. <laughs> yes, yes. It was constantly coming out as I was making dumplings. Dumplings were being steamed and fried and being served us. And then we would eat that as making more dumplings. Every surface covered with dumplings, all that stuff. <laughs> That's a dumpling dream. I love it. So yes. you didn't start cooking until later in your life. So could you tell everyone a little bit more about what life looked like before you entered the food world and before you opened your restaurant? 
Yeah. It's sort of a good segue from like talking about family gatherings because if when I think about my childhood in Korea, I, I grew up in Korea. I came to the United States when I was 13. It's so, sort of like a, a light goes off. So mm. it's it, I went from like constant eating, family gatherings, being able to walk to my auntie's house, like going picnics with the family, extended family, living with grandparents, to sort of just my mom, me, and my brother in New Jersey, uh, in the place where you could go anywhere, uh, even if you knew anybody, if you didn't have a car, and mm. not as much cooking. So my mom did all the cooking, but it was like, it became more like sustenance almost, instead of like celebration, even though she her food was still good and it was still homemade. And when I was growing up, you know, I, I went to college and I was a server throughout the college years. And the last thing I wanted to do was to go back to the restaurant. Um, I wanted just a job where I can sit down and do it. <laughs> that, that was sort of like the goal, career goal. Um, so I was doing uh, hospital administration because that was the job that I can find following 9-11 that was willing to sponsor an alien pretty much mm -hmm. for a green right. card. Yeah. And I did that for a while. And, and once I got my green card and I can take a breather, started making some money. Then I started asking myself, like, what gives me joy? What is it that I want to do instead of what I have to do? And, and then I started, started thinking deeply about like my future, like up until that point, it was mostly I have to go to college to stay on student visa. I have to get a green card. So I have to get a job, whatever that pays me. And I have to make financial means. So whatever pays me the most was the job that I chose. There was never a point where I had the space to hold for myself and ask myself what I wanted. And when I started thinking about this, um, it gave me a little bit of a headache. <laughs> and, and But like the only time that I was like really enjoying myself was when I was eating food. And at the time I was living in Michigan, commuting to New Jersey and had just gotten married and missing my mother's home cooked meal quite a bit. And that's when I thought maybe I'll give myself some time to explore this yearning for food. And I just jumped off the hospital administration train and jumped on the food industry. The first place that I worked at was uh, Zingerman's uh, Delicatessen, mm -hmm. the famed Jewish deli and specialty store in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, it's known for its Rubens, but I think it's really, in, in my opinion, the gem of that space is the specialty food because they have the most amazing selection of meats and cheeses and balsamic vinegars from families who's done balsamic vinegars for generations. Oh, wow. Yeah, olive oils coming in as soon as it's harvested. It's so green that it's, when you look at it in the bottle, it glows neon green and 
sometimes oh, I the love producer, that color. <laughs> yeah right yes. producers will come and talk to you about it we'll do we'll do tastings of one kind of cheese just different age to learn about it we will be cupping coffee and it was just an amazing amazing opportunity and it didn't feel like work at all i i looked forward to going to work every day because the the food and food was so good and the learning i was doing so much learning and that's how I sort of i got into the hospitality business after swearing it off all, all those years ago as a server. And then and then I, um, long story short, I went on uh, something called Path to Partnership where uh, Zingerman's community of businesses give opportunities for people to open their own businesses with them as partners. And uh, then I opened a restaurant and my restaurant has been open for five years. Wow. What a journey. I mean, <laughs> you totally pivoted. And we and I you know what I love about the food world is I hear about these pivots a lot. I pivoted as well. Um, but that's also the beauty of it. You don't necessarily have to be classically trained to do exceptionally well. And so you opened Miss Kim five years ago. Can you tell everybody a little bit about the inspiration first behind the name? Because I, I, I think it's a great story, and then the food and the dishes that you share. Sure, I, uh, I am, a t I am terrible at naming things. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's really, really terrible. Like I don't find anything clever, like very suiting. <laughs> yeah, and I cannot think of anything that like I can stick with for a long time. This is a this is a reason why I do not have a tattoo. <laughs> um, oh, neither do I. <laughs> it's too permanent. It's too permanent. It's too much of a commitment. What if I think it's not cool after two years later, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. So when it, when it came to time to name the restaurant, I thought about a lot. And I think I wanted to convey that it was a Korean restaurant. And I wanted to convey that it was proudly female-owned Korean restaurant. So I settled with Miss Kim because Miss is very, um, you know, it, it's feminine calling. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kim is the most popular uh, Korean last name. And unlike Lee, um, which can be also Chinese, uh, Kim is more, less so popular in other Asian countries. I think it's mm -hmm. like predominantly a Korean last name. It also happened to be my last name, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm very introvert. So it's not something that I would have put on like my name, ep 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 eponymous names. It's not something that I would have done. Even uh -huh. if my last name was Park, I would have called it Miss Kim. <laughs> I love it. You're like, it's really not about me. It's about everybody else. <laughs> yeah. It makes me feel itchy to put my own name on the awning. <laughs> I totally get that. So the food that you share is Korean, which makes sense. Um, but it sounds as though that, you know, you have a little Midwestern twist into the dishes that you, or at least the ingredients that you use to create the yeah. Korean classics. Yeah. I, <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because um, I sometimes get uh, cold fusion or sometimes people call it like, oh, this is Korean American food. And they call it with a little bit of eye roll and a derision. Oh. And, uh, or sometimes people will say, this is not Korean food flat out. And it's actually, 
more than just using ingredients that's around. I thought about this a lot. I mean, I first wanted to offer different menu than what everybody else had because uh, you can see a lot more variety in the West Coast or in New York where there are a higher population of Korean Korean people. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would see like, you know, barbecue places or or like knife noodle places. So you, you have like restaurants specializing in like one or two things. In Ann Arbor, at least, you have Korean restaurants with a similar menu that's trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. And... And that was that's more foreign to me, uh, having grown up in Korea than than um, having like a different menu. Because if you if you grow up in Korea and if you look at food and the restaurants served in Korea, first of all, everything's Korean food. Even when they say it's doing Chinese food, Chinese people won't recognize that as Chinese food. It's uh, Chinese Korean food, um, and you see restaurants that specializes in things. They specialize in regional cuisine or they specialize in vegetarian food or they specialize in dumplings or or specific type of noodles. Or maybe they'll specialize in pork barbecue, but they only do skin or they only do belly. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, having a menu that covers everything is not as interesting. And because I'm not classically trained chef, I looked I started looking a lot into Korean food. I approached it as if I was going to write an eight-page paper on it. (laughs) And then it became like various topics of eight-page essays, right? So there's like a Buddhist cuisine, regional cuisine. There's like historic cuisine and royal cuisine. And like what my mom cooked, what I thought was that's, when I was growing up, I thought what my mom cooked was just Korean home cooking. And then the more I looked at it, I realized she was, she was cooking Korean home cooking, but she was cooking the food from where she she herself was born and raised in the central part of Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, very specific regional dishes that I thought was like every Korean people knew, but it wasn't. So when I thought about all of that and started studying, I realized like Korea is... Not that big. It's like, I think Texas is bigger than Korea. (laughs) (laughs) Everything's bigger in Texas. (laughs) Everything's bigger in Texas. Um, uh, I think it's the size of like Indiana, maybe. Um, South Korea is. But Mm -hmm. um, it's a peninsula and it's mountainous. And so depending on where you end up, you can be on seaside or you can be on mountaintop or or you can be right in the middle of the city where all the supply chains always went to that city and the food would look different. Right. Like even same dish will look different. Like bibimbap would look different depending on where you end up. So to me, that told me that where you're cooking is very, very important and relevant to your menu because that's how it is in Korea. Like people people who are cooking in like Jeju Island uh, will use different things and have different dishes than people who are cooking in Gangwon-do, which is like the mountainside where the the the, <laughs> the Winter Olympics were held four years ago. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. So when I think about that, and I was just like, why wouldn't I use what's specific to Michigan? If my ancestors and even my Korean countrymen, even today, are using what's specific to where they are. I think that is such a good point. I think that people are just so easy to lump a cuisine into one box and they forget that there are so many regional differences. And for you, where you are right now in the Midwest, 
to me, that's a regional difference. It also calls to mind. I remember my mom, you know, when she moved from the Philippines to New York, her challenges finding ingredients back in the early 70s was much harder. Now there's so many Asian grocery stores. But back then, like if she couldn't find tamarind, she would have to use lemon, for example. And yeah. so for me, like a specific dish, you know, that I grew up on, while authentic to me and to our experience, may not technically be quote unquote authentic, but that's just part of the diaspora. And that's just how food evolves. And I think people are so quick to judge <laughs> whether something is right or wrong. Absolutely. To me, I think there's no right and right and wrong in food. I think there's just the work that you put in and how thoughtful and resourceful you are about it. And I started looking at Korean diaspora. So I started looking at border cuisines of North Korea and China and what they do when they make kimchi. Or there is Russian Russian Koreans who are well, Korean Russians, yeah, ethnic Koreans who are Russians that are exiled to Central Asia, where mm -hmm. they did not have ingredients available to them, traditional ingredients, and then they made the, you know, they make it do, they make, they still honor the tradition of the culinary tradition of their ancestors, they try, try to still make the noodles and the kimchi, but, you know, they adapt it to what's available locally. I actually really love that. I love that resilience. And I think it is, it, it is sort of short-sighted to look down on something as immigrant cuisine or not as authentic or like a Korean American cuisine or Chinese American cuisine. And somehow it's less valuable. I, I object to that idea. Amen. I totally agree. <laughs> So as a chef, you're building relationships with your local farmers in Ann Arbor, and I imagine that you've developed some really special relationships with them. What is it like sourcing for ingredients for Miss Kim? Um, it's one of my favorite part of my job. <laughs> I mean, some things you love and sometimes some things you do it because you need to do it like profit and loss statement you oh. do it <laughs> you do it because it's essential to the business but that's not what what initially drew you to the restaurant industry right or like I am an introvert so content creation for Instagram is sometimes I have to be in a specific mood to do it and yeah. if I am in the mood then great if I wasn't in the mood then it's like pulling teeth but my restaurant is like a block away from the farmer's market and walking around the farmer's market and saying hi to people is just pure joy. There is no complicated and there's nothing complicated about that because the colors are so beautiful. Like Michigan season is short. That would be my complaint. The the, <laughs> the farming season is shorter. It's definitely not California. But in the height of like harvest season, like I don't know, first, second week of September and you walk around and it's a um, feast for your eyes, all the colors and so much diversity that you would maybe not expect from a mid-east, mid-west uh, Michigan farmer's market. But this farmer's market is 100 years old and they made a lot of efforts to bring diversity into the market. And when I think about diversity into the market, I don't necessarily think about the skin color of the farmers as much as what the farmers, each farmers are bringing in. Mm -hmm. And they started featuring like Hmong farmers. And then suddenly I had access to like 
12 different kind of eggplants instead of two. Oh, how and, nice. Yeah, of various different sizes. And that was just beautiful. Like, you know, fairy tale ones, the, the tiny round ones, the mm-hmm. deep purple ones, light purple ones, different sizes. And eggplant's not even my favorite vegetable, but I would just sometimes take extra minutes just gaga at it. I would look at it and go like, oh, so pretty. What they can I are. do with this? <laughs> yeah, right? And it's also like, it's also like a little haven from reality because I'm sure in that farmer's market, there are farmers that may not see things I do that I do I with me on different topics but it doesn't matter because all we're talking about is the farming season how the asparagus is going can I like come back for another week or do they think that this is it this is the week that last week of asparagus or you know we talk about like how their kids are and I bring them food that I made with their vegetables and they love it and it's just just simple simple beauty <laughs> I love so, that. And yeah. I love how food is so diplomatic. It, you know, it. I, th- I think that we've lost a lot of that interpersonal connection that you're experiencing where you actually talk to somebody and not necessarily have to debate them all yeah. the time. Yeah. And I feel like when everyone's behind their keyboards, everyone is just ready for some sort of debate. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have to admit, I could be one of those debating kind of person. But uh-huh. I, I mean, I was at the farmer's market and Tyler is one of my favorite farmers, farmer's helper. And he like he would like invite me out to like go hunting and and fishing, which is like inviting me into his culture, which is wonderful. And then one day he started complaining about the farmer's market organizers trying to bring diversity and how they're pushing out uh, families who's been coming for years and years and we don't have space. And I, I was just like, I looked at him and normally if I saw or heard something like that, I would like be more fast Mm-hmm. And coming back with sarcastic or or cutting remarks <laughs> in right. my head, but I was like Tyler, I think there's enough space, and you know, look at my face. Why are you telling me this? <laughs> and then Tyler started laughing, and we we're okay. Yeah, and see, and that's what that's the relationship that you build, and that speaks to your friendship. So I think that's super cool that you can. Yeah, you can talk I mean, about that. you know, people say like once you break bread, it's sort of difficult to be mean to each other like once you talked about like Swiss chart for half an hour it's sort of hard to go back (laughs) (laughs) Swiss chart is the equalizer (laughs) yes the Swiss chart is the great equalizer it's the the yeah neutral country (laughs) oh my gosh so are there any specific Michigan ingredients that you found work beautifully in the cuisine that you share oh yeah I used to really dislike beets. I used to think that they taste like dirt. And (laughs) even when they're pickled, I I thought their texture was just mushy. Mm -hmm. And um, I even didn't like the color, that it was bleeding into everything it was touching. Oh, yeah. But when I started working with local beets, and beets are everywhere, and they're so fresh, you can get like the whole plant, right? The beets and the stalks and the leaves, and leaves leaves are just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And when I started working with local beets, that's when I realized that there were various ways to utilize this vegetable that I didn't think was good before, and, and to have it so delicious. 
So we would braise the beets or roast the beets or like slice it thin and then put it into salads or toss it and lightly pickle it and then um, eat it like it w- if it was like a radish kimchi and and we we slice it thin and then fry it like Buddhist monks fry vegetable chips and all those um, was like an eye opening and now I I love them. And I love mm. the colors, and I love how they bleed onto the plate when I put it on salad. <laughs> um, Brussels sprouts is another one. Um, uh. Yeah, I don't think it works really well as kimchi because it's very tightly wound, but they work great as like a sautéed vegetable or like a banchan side dish for uh, for your uh, main course. So those are ingredients that are really not readily available well until recently in korea now that they're available but it's definitely new vegetable so it doesn't feature in heavily in like older cookbooks that are 100 200 years old but i think it works really well with the korean cuisine oh well you've named two of my favorite things and speaking of cookbooks you have so much story to tell is there a cookbook on the horizon for you Oh my god, that will be a dream. Uh, I I talked to a couple cookbook agents and I am uh, in the I am trying to write something up to uh, turn it into a proposal, but that would be really fun. Oh my gosh. Well, when you do, please come back so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely will do. And I also have to ask this because my daughter, she's a freshman in college and her minor is in Korean. Oh, and her favorite, one of her favorite Korean foods is chokboki. Yes. So I was wondering, first of all, if maybe you could describe it for people who don't know, and then then maybe talk about how you prepare it and what makes yours different. Oh, absolutely. It's um, I want to preface it by this is uh, one of the most popular dishes at the restaurant. Oh, good. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> this is also a dish that all my Korean and Korean American friends were like trying to stop me from making and putting it on the menu because they're like, oh, you know, people don't like that. American people don't like that. White people don't no. like the chewy stuff. But I'm glad I you didn't listen. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I think they'll like it. And then once I put it on the menu, it was like almost immediately a hit. So it's a, a rice cake. So it's pounded cooked rice and extruded into like the 2B shape. Textures, um, depending on how you cook it, it could be similar to gnocchi in its mm-hmm. kind of pillowy, soft texture. And uh, let's see, I often use it as like, as if it's a pasta, but this is a dish that can be made in different iterations, but the most popular iteration is made with kochujang, which is a fermented chili paste with anchovy stock and a little bit of sugar and sesame and it's the quintessential street food in Korea and I have a huge connection to this dish. This is what my mom would have called delinquent food because it's not homemade food. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> it's just a stuff that's sold out in the air open on the sidewalks of Korea where all the buses are also just like you know, zooming by this food stall, like just three feet away. So My mom would have called that the dirty food. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Unsanitary, like <laughs> open air food. And also she did not believe in giving a child any cash at all. Like why a child, why would you need any cash? I provide everything for you mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. So I was in my second grade and I didn't have any cash at all. 
and I really wanted this uh, street food. And I just remember very clearly she had a table and a huge like a uh, it's a it looks like flat top, but it has edges so it can hold like liquid mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just red soupy sauce and the rice cakes and all of my classmates were eating them and I couldn't get any because I didn't have any money. And, and then one day, so I would just accompany my friend and then just look at it. And then one day I saw a kid pull out a little carton of milk, give it to the street vendor. And then the street vendor gave him five sticks of rice cakes. <gasps> Oh, a little trade. Yeah, a little trade. And rice cakes are pretty hefty. So five sticks are like enough to fill a child. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, oh, interesting. And so then I saved my carton of milk (laughs) and kept it in my backpack for a few hours. Now that I know food safety, that's a little horrifying. (laughs) At room temperature, like like I held it tight in my chest until the end of school. So it was like a nice 98 degrees. (laughs) nice toasty warm milk (laughs) that's been sitting in my backpack or like I've been holding in my tiny hand yeah and uh it was probably okay because it was within the four hour range but I'm (laughs) horrifying (laughs) but you know let's not let I'm gonna gloss over that detail yeah forget about that part yeah (laughs) and then I walked over to the little tent uh with the street vendor and I remember her being big but it's probably that I was small. <laughs> so I like, I mentioned that I was shy multiple times and I was even shyer child that didn't speak very much outside. But I was just like, uh, I have this. And I just like handed it to her and she didn't say much. She just looked at me and then she gave me a plate of five sticks of rice cakes with some sauce. Yay! <laughs> that was so amazing. I, I, I was also... That I, that's also when I learned that I can break rules and just ask for forgiveness. So mm-hmm. To this day, I'm more of a ask for forgiveness instead of permission kind of person right. if I really want something. Yeah. So I was ecstatic. So I, did, I was doing this like pretty regularly. <laughs> <laughs> and then the school caught on because I wasn't the only person doing it. So the teacher uh, announced that this was not... Uh, this was not a thing to do and it was against the rules and anybody who get caught will be punished. Uh-oh. Yeah. But I kept doing it until I, I was caught by my classmate. And I, like, to this day wonder what he does, where he ended up, because he blackmailed me. Into oh, gosh. Doing... <laughs> it's I want to remind everybody, second grade. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he blackmailed me to do his penmanship homework, to buy his silence. So, and while this blackmail thing was going on, I also saw another student, you know, own up to breaking the rules and, and giving away the lukewarm milk to the vendor for <laughs> for the illicit street food <laughs> and then be forgiven. So I faced this dilemma where I can I can be I can rise to the occasion, do the right thing and be forgiven for my wrongdoings or I can succumb to this blackmail, this cowardly blackmail just so that I can have street food. And um I will just say that my penmanship is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is the funniest story I've heard all yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, I didn't even get into how I cooked the food. Okay, so 
<laughs> okay, the, the dish. <laughs> so when I was going to put this dish on the menu, I thought about a lot. And I, you know, I don't want to admit to this, but sometimes I do think about presenting Korean food in a way that everybody can enjoy because sometimes when dish relies on nostalgia a lot it doesn't translate for everybody so like the prime example for me would be cereal i didn't grow up eating cereal so when i first tasted cereal milk that everybody was so gaga over i just didn't get it because oh, it was just thank you because yeah that's actually the worst part of cereal to me the cereal milk <laughs> yeah it's some junk food that's been soggy <laughs> in milk and with like a food coloring and lots of sugar and i was just yeah. like what is this I thought I was the only one who disliked cereal milk, but I, no. I'm the type of person who tries to put as little milk as yeah. possible. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and people who love cereal milk, they love, mm-hmm. love cereal milk. So yeah. I was like, I don't get it. It's because I think I didn't grow up eating cereal. Um, uh-huh. So I try to like think of the dish and see if, uh, if uh, somebody would buy it and get it and enjoy it, even if they didn't have a personal connection to it, then the dish needs to be really good on its own without right. relying on the nostalgia. So, and I, I think about texture a lot and most of the street version, street food version of it is they make modification to what used to be a beautiful, like bountiful dish uh, f- that's originated from palace cooking into something that they can hold for a long time and it's simple enough and, and has cheap food costs and then you can just scoop and serve, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought if I am going to mess with something that so many people hold dearly in their heart because it was the uh, street food that they grew up loving, then I need to do it really thoughtfully and I, I better know about this dish. So I looked into the dish and learned that it used to have a lot more different ingredients and it didn't used to have gochujang in it and it used to be made with rice cakes. And then when Korea was struggling after Korean War, rice was really expensive. So then they started making it with wheat flour, like a really, really, really thick wheat noodles. And then during the 80s, uh, when Korea started doing better in economy, it sort of switched to rice cakes. So even today, you can find people who are passionate about the rice cake version of it or the wheat cake version of it. I grew up with the, yeah, I grew up with the wheat cake and then I saw the change into the rice cake and I I like both of them. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so when I, and the temptation of the (laughs) dark life, (laughs) not following the rules was probably more exciting than the dish itself because this dish, I loved getting it, but I didn't necessarily enjoy eating it as much as a lot of other food that my mom was making. Yeah, but what I did really love was I found the simpler variation of the dish, uh, another street food, and it's a rice cake skewers. So you would Uh put it in a skewer and then you deep fry it. So it's crunchy outside Mm. and then soft and chewy inside. And then uh, the vendor will just smear gochujang based sauce on it. So it's like a meat on a stick, except it's rice on a stick. Yeah, yeah. Rice cake on a stick. And I love the texture so much. So when I thought about putting this on the menu, I thought like, okay, I'm not going to braise the rice cakes so the texture is mushy. I'm going to saute it so that it's crunchy outside or crusty outside, but the inside is still soft. And then I'm going to throw in a couple more like luxury ingredients. <laughs> like, And we had at the time, 
pork buns, which is not even Korean food, but mm-hmm. <laughs> we had we had a lot of pork belly on the menu. And and when you cut pork belly exactly into a square, you get a lot of little like little side pieces. So I was mm-hmm. like, well, I want to use those pieces. And I think there is another Korean dish that uh, pork uh, that's smeared in gochujang sauce and then uh, barbecued, and that's really tasty. So I knew that the flavor combination would work. So that sounds amazing. Yeah, so I thought I'm going to use this byproduct of the other dish, uh, bits of uh, Korean pork belly lardongs, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to pan fry the rice cakes. And then I learned that there was a variation, more recent variation, where uh, the rice cakes are fried in lard instead of uh, braised. So I also had a lot of uh, uh, byproduct pork fat. I said, like, okay, I'm going to... F- I'm going to pan fry the rice cakes in lard and throw in the pork belly lardongs and, and then fry it until the outside is crispy and then uh, deglaze the pan with the gochujang sauce because gochujang sauce tends to burn very easily. Mm-hmm. And if you leave it on the pan too long, then the sauce starts kind of getting pasty and really dark. So you just throw in the sauce toward the end of the sauteing and then toss it really quick and then plate it on the plate immediately. A lot of uh, rice cakes has, uh, the tteokbokki has gotten developed into many different variations. So like black bean ones is another one and the Royale style where that's more soy sauce based one was another one. Mm. And my favorite one was always the gochujang one, but I like to decorate it with like eggs and uh, tempura fried vegetables and, and make it like really bountiful. So I was like, okay, I'm going to put an egg on it. And that people makes who make, complete sense. <laughs> yeah, people who have low tolerance to spice, the kind of runny egg will sort of make it more milder and richer mm-hmm. and more palatable. So that's how that dish, the uh, first iteration of tteokbokki, made it onto the menu, and it's it remains to be the one of the most popular and. Before the pandemic, we had a local Korean lady make the rice cakes fresh for us. And so to me, that was another point that was really dear to my heart, that we were able to find someone who can make the rice cakes just like two miles down the road. And we were using locally made rice cakes. So I thought this dish was very representative of what I wanted to achieve in the restaurants. <laughs> the the wow. size. Yeah, the side story is that the pandemic had changed a lot of things, just like for most restaurants. And the woman who was making the rice cakes uh, owned a grocery store. And in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, pandemic hit Asia first. So we had such difficult time getting rice for the first couple months Hmm. that she wasn't going to waste rice put in more like not waste but she wasn't going to take the rice that she can sell just off the shelf that she didn't have a lot of that was flying off the shelf she wasn't going to take that and put in a lot of labor to make rice cakes just to sell it to a restaurant so she refused to make it for us anymore oh no so did you have to start making it yourself (laughs) it is very hard to make it by myself because you need a special uh, machine that's probably going to take like half my restaurant kitchen. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah, so we ended up we ended up just buying what's commercially available, which is actually not bad at all. You just need to look at the ingredients and make sure that you're getting um, rice cake that's made simple ingredients and doesn't have a lot of weird stuff in it and that it's not frozen to death. 
Uh, so the, yeah, the quality of like a, a packaged rice cakes uh just as good. It just that it the, it still does not beat the uh, the texture of the freshly made rice cakes that's never been frozen. Mm. So one that's a little I, bit bummer. Yeah, I'd love to do a field trip with you to H Mart one day so you could show me oh. all the good brands. <laughs> yes, H Mart is my favorite. <laughs> well, I can't believe we're the time has just flown by. So I just have a few closing questions before I let you go. But honestly, I've enjoyed chatting with you so much. And I feel like I, there's so much more to talk about. So <laughs> thank you for your time. But I always ask, what's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency go-to dinner? <laughs> I um Okay, I have two. Okay. <laughs> and I just actually made one. Uh, right before this uh, podcast because I was so tired. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's, um, I usually have a, a stash of really good canned tuna. My favorite is Ortiz from Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have a really amazing canned tuna and then I usually have a jar of kimchi uh, in my uh, in my fridge. Most oftentimes it's from my own restaurant, but sometimes I would get you know, H Mart kimchi on the fly. Uh-huh. I just saute some kimchi and uh, Ortiz tuna together and then throw in some water and turn it into a kimchi stew. Oh, and then nice. I would just eat that with a hot bowl of rice. So that's if I have still a little bit of energy. <laughs> if I don't have energy, then what I eat is big bowl of rice and I add a little bit of oil of my choice, sometimes perla oil, sometimes sesame oil, sometimes melted butter, mm-hmm. and a little bit of soy sauce. And then I crack an egg and just add a yolk on it. Mm-hmm. And then you just like mix everything together. And then I eat it with the uh, <laughs> the toasted seaweed. <laughs> it's, a, it's a kid's meal that I enjoyed a lot when I was growing up. And it still brings me a lot of comfort. And as long as you have a pot of cooked rice and you can whip that up in 30 seconds. Wow, that sounds very comforting. And rice, I could always, I could just eat rice plain and be happy. So <laughs> the same, yes, the same, yeah. What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Oh, that's a so that's such a difficult question. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, for the restaurant or for for myself for personal? I'm gonna say personal. Okay, I love making stock I don't really necessarily have a recipe for them mm-hmm. um, but I love that you don't need to have a, a huge culinary skill to make really good broth you just need to put in a lot of time and care and so I would depending on what day I would make chicken stock uh, or Korean uh, beef stock and the way that stock is made in Korea is different than uh, say French stock so you wash the bones really well and then you you sort of blanch the bones and then throw out the first batch of water to That's get rid of all the skin. That's how my aunt makes it. Yeah. Yes, it clarifies yes. it. Yeah. And then and then you slowly simmer it and, and you watch it a little bit. You simmer it and simmer it and simmer it until uh, the stock itself is cloudy. I know that like a clear stock is very treasured, but mm-hmm. this... Uh, sticky bone broth where all the collagen and marrow is melted out into the bones into the broth and 
and you don't have to skim as much as as long as you wash the bones and then throw out the first uh, pot of water and mm-hmm. it's so so comforting and and really there's no getting around to making the stock a quick and dirty way or chefy way it's just you just need to put time and effort into it and the entire house is warm from it yeah so that's what i make for my friends if they're not feeling well Oh, magic broth. <laughs> yeah, bone broth before the bone broth was claimed by Brooklynite <laughs> hipsters. Yeah. I know those hipsters. My gosh, it's not like they came up with that stuff. My I was like, bone broth? <laughs> like, stock? Yeah, like, I know, right? Am I missing something? <laughs> yeah, it's like bone broth, like salamtang or, yeah, <laughs> or pho or like, you know, things yeah. that Asian people have been doing for years and years and years. Exactly. Yeah. What's a good kitchen tip? Always have a sharp knife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know people don't sharpen it as often, but it, it really pays. It makes your life so much easier when you have a knife that's sharp and ready for you. It's going to be easier on the wrist. Yeah. And it saves you trips to the ER like me. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, and then if you cut yourself, it hurts less. Yes, exactly. <laughs> It'll heal faster. <laughs> oh, I have another tip. Mm-hmm. Use uh, two different kinds of salt when you're seasoning. Right. Yeah. So, one for seasoning and one for finishing? Oh, oh, I don't mean that. I mean, oh, okay. um, I mean like when I try to season the soup, for example, or stew, um, I may season it with salt and then finish finish with soy sauce. Mm-hmm. Or I may use like a salt and fish sauce. Or right. yeah, I may use salt and then throw in like a parm rind and like dust it like a microplane parm on top. So like if you use two different kinds of salty element in your dish, it makes the flavor a lot more complex. Yes, that's such a good, good tip. I agree completely. I love using fish sauce. Yeah, me too. Just a little bit. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But it's so good. Add it to your spaghetti and it elevates it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So I try to share five little things with my audience. Typically, it's something that made me smile or think. Is there anything that made you smile this week? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Two things made me smile. I was exhausted. I worked seven days for few weeks in a row and I'm training some new leaders in the kitchen and and I think um, I rarely cry but I think I burst into crying because I was so tired my 14 year old dog was waking me up every two hours a night (laughs) and I find it difficult to open up because I feel that there's so much on my shoulders if I open up I'm gonna just break down but I opened up and a friend brought me like two different pies from Sister Pie, which is an amazing uh, bakery in Detroit with like seven different kinds of cookies. And oh, they, wow. they just, yeah, that just gave me a lot of energy. And then my other friend texted me if she can come and buy pre-made gochujang sauce from me. And I offered to bring it to her on the house because she's a she forever has my heart because when I got my citizenship, she baked me an American flag cake oh that's so sweet (laughs) but she wanted to she didn't want to use artificial coloring so it became like washed out looking (laughs) like like a little faded (laughs) blueberry colored pastel cake 
it was pink and lavender colored American flag and it was so dear to my heart so it gave me a lot of joy to bring her a quart of gochujang paste and just see her face even if uh, it's just briefly so yeah I gotta remember that I have friends I love in the community oh that's good you know what what would we do without good friends and little moments like that yes yeah well Jihei I had so much fun talking to you it really was such a joy and I one day, I keep saying I want to come to Ann Arbor. I, I know it's a beautiful town, and I'll have to bring my daughter so that we can eat chukmoki with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Please do come. Just avoid December to February, and you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good point. Yes, yes. I will. I think spring or like May would be wonderful. May is beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thank you again. And I, I really appreciate talking to you today. You too. It's been my pleasure. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Chef Jihei Kim for joining us today. I can't wait to plan a trip to Ann Arbor and eat her food. And I'm so inspired to make jokboki in my own kitchen. Find Jihei on Instagram at Chef Jihei Kim and Miss Kim at Miss Kim Ann Arbor. And of course, on misskimannarbor.com. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. <laughs>